Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. We thank, as always, the Believe Network for hosting this show. And we thank Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer, for all his valuable time and outstanding work. Speaking of outstanding work, how about the career of Tim McCarver? You know, you stop and think about legends in one thing they do, but to be a legend in two different things, much like our guest last week, Mike Reed, in music and, and football. Well, the same is true of Tim McCarver. He's our guest this week. This guy was a great baseball player, great player. Two-time All-Star, won a couple of World Series, finished second in an MVP balloting one year, played in four different decades, four different decades. He caught Bob Gibson regularly, Steve Carlton regularly, and after all is said and done, he goes into the broadcast booth where no color analyst who has ever lived in any sport, including even John Madden, no one had the career in television that Tim McCarver had and still has. He's still broadcasting local games for the St. Louis Cardinals. We will talk about all that and more with Tim McCarver next on Dialed In. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health, serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. James Timothy McCarver was born in October 1941 in Memphis, Tennessee, to parents Alice and Edward. His father was a policeman. After graduating from Christian Brothers High School, he was signed by the St. Louis Cardinals in 1959. Back in those days, there was no Major League Baseball draft. That same year, has a couple of stops in the minor leagues, and he's in the major leagues at 17 years young. 17. Spent the next couple of years, you know, up and down, Major League Club, Minor League, then gets called up for good in 1963. The next year, his home run wins Game 5 of the World Series. Two years later, he's an All-Star, and as a catcher, becomes the first catcher to ever lead the league in triples. In 1967, he's runner-up to teammate Orlando Cepeda, for the National League's Most Valuable Player Award, and won another World Series. 
His last appearance in the big leagues was in 1980. Remember, he came up as a teenager in 59. He's one of 29 players to ever appear in the major leagues in four different decades. All right, that's a baseball life. Now becomes a broadcasting life. He starts in Philadelphia. He's called baseball for all four major U.S. television networks. All four. And called an unprecedented 24 World Series. Think about this for a minute. From 1984 to 2013, Tim McCarver never missed commentating at least one league championship series per year. He worked skiing at the 1988 Winter Olympic Games in Calgary. In 1992, he was a co-host in primetime coverage of the Olympic Games for CBS. His baseball work honored as winner of the Ford C. Frick Award and was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2012. He's a proud dad of two daughters, Kathy and Kelly. Tim McCarver, is there anything I missed in that introduction that I should have had in there? I'll tell you, that might be the most glowing introduction I've ever had. Thank you very much, Tom. You know, I, I don't even know where to begin with you, but I, I generally like to go back to, you know, your upbringing. You're in Memphis, Tennessee. I mentioned earlier your dad is a policeman. Your mom is a housewife. You have seven in the family. What was life like in the McCarver household as a kid? Well, I was, I was next to youngest. Um, we had, we, there were four boys one girl in the in the family my sister was the best athlete interestingly uh, she was next to oldest uh, the the middle two were were very close in age and i was next to youngest and it was uh, it, it was very it was a very feisty household <laughs> i'll say that uh, as you, as you might imagine with my Oldest brother, a very good athlete. He became a Christian brother and taught for uh, 20 years. Uh, my sister, as I said, was the best athlete. She taught me how to hit, as a matter of fact. Uh, she wanted me to hit left-handed and not right-handed. And, and I had the right teacher, too, and that was she. And, uh, and then, then I had my youngest brother. Uh, the two of us were still alive. My youngest brother and me are obviously still alive. Were, were you a multi-sport guy, Tim? I mean, back in those days, you know, it wasn't so specialized like it seems for a lot of young kids now. I mean, were you playing everything, or, or was baseball pretty much where you wanted to be? I, uh, as, my, as my football coach used to say, I read the, fair, the prayer session in basketball. That's how bad I was. <laughs> 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 and and then football football was my favorite sport. I loved contact, and that made it made things a lot easier the older I got because uh, I was able to have a lot of contact in Major League Baseball as a catcher. Uh, there's all the contact you want back there, my friend. Oh, there's no, there's no think, question about think, how that has changed, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But you know. You right. get out of high school and you sign in 1959, and, and, and I mean, I you know, I, I'm reading this story about you where, where literally months later, you're getting down to squat down behind home plate, 
and you're playing Milwaukee, and and Hank Aaron is stepping in the box. I mean, this has to be, and I know it's a long time ago, Tim, but this is one of those things I have to imagine. You will never, ever, ever forget what that moment must have been like. No, and I I never did forget it. As a matter of fact, my I never did forget several days earlier when I found out that Stan Stan Musial uh, uh, was my teammate. So I had Henry Aaron at the plate, Stan Musial as my teammate, and I was glowing, obviously, <laughs> as, as, as you might imagine. And my first out that I made in the big leagues was a fly ball to Henry Aaron in right field. How about that? How about that? that I mean, yeah. It's just, yeah. you know, it, 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 it was uh, – but it was a very different time in America than it was today. You know, you were coming up when the color barrier uh, had been broken yeah. in baseball. Um, and, and I would imagine – correct me if I'm wrong here, Timmy, but, but I would imagine when you first came to the big leagues, whether it was as a 17-year-old or came to stay a few years later, um, when you were brought to the big leagues for good in 63 – uh, you didn't stay in the same hotel as your African-American teammates, right? That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, Bill White led some of the African-American players uh, with the Cardinals uh, on a campaign. It was a sensible campaign of going to the brewery and quite sensibly asking that they uh, find out the – the, the problem that exists and not – I remember Bill said uh, we're good enough to play with the, with the white players on the team, but we're not good enough to stay at the same mm-hmm. hotel. I mean, that, this, is, this is senseless, which it was. So the brewery uh, – it, it, we were training in St. Petersburg at the time, and the brewery uh, uh, took Bill's advice bought a hotel, the Outrigger Inn, uh, that served Polynesian food. All of us couldn't stand Polynesian food <laughs> at, the, at the time. We had no idea what Polynesian food was. <laughs> the black players and the white players, all. But uh, that was the it – was, it was a very good move by the brewery. And every time I passed that hotel – uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, I think of I think of those days. You know, you look back, and and that time Timmy was really called the golden age of baseball. Um, uh, Hank Aaron, and and of course Mickey Mantle, and Willie Mays, just to name a few. And and you know the the, the competition level. And we'll circle back to this a little bit later on. But, I mean, you know, I remember the years I was working with Ron Santo and hearing stories about the dislike between this team and that team and and the fights and and the collisions at second base and the collisions at home plate. The the competition level had to be just astronomical in those days. Is that fair to say? That that is fair to say. I mean – a guy like Bob Gibson, for instance, could not stand talking to the opposition. Could not stand it. I remember one night in in the middle '60s, and Joe Torre and Bob Gibson and I were on the elevator at Dodger Stadium, and uh, uh, the, the outfielder Crawford 
uh, who's who's the outfielder for the Dodgers, yeah. got on, got on the elevator and said, uh, "Oh, you guys are going down, and and you were swept by San Diego, and you think you're going you're going to sweep us? We'd we'd won our second game that night, and the next night." Bob Gibson was the starting pitcher, and the first time up on an 0-2 pitch, he hit Crawford in the knee. Oh, he was speaking to him on the elevator the night before, and that is a true story. Joe Torrey and, well, Bob were not verified, of course. He passed this last year, but uh, Joe Torrey would certainly uh, – I don't, I don't need any qualification, really. I, I, I was catching the next night. Right. And and Bob hit him, and, and I didn't know it was coming, and uh, and Bob didn't tell me anything about it either. But there were there were ways of settling things in those days uh, that are not not apparent today. As a matter of fact, some of the guys have the same agent today, and uh, and it's a very strange strange thing when when uh, when guys on the field are. Or, you know, they've got their arms around each yep. other when there's a picking change now. Yep. So the, the game has radically changed. There's no doubt about that. Do you remember the first time you met Bob Gibson? You know, I, I, he, he was to me, and, and I was blessed enough to grow up around some of the great stars in the history of the game. Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, whatever it might be. But, you know, Gibson, when I met him, when I started doing the Cubs games, he, I mean, there are very few people that I have just been completely intimidated by when I met him. <laughs> was he like that the first time you met him? It, it was like that. He was like that throughout our, our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. He always, he always, he was a very cerebral guy. <clears throat> Went to Creighton, graduated from Creighton, mm-hmm. played basketball at Creighton. Basketball was his favorite sport. And he was very influenced by Josh Gibson, who was his oldest brother. And and he, Bob lost his father when he was very young. And and Josh became his mentor. And And Bob was a very, very respectful guy who could not stand talking to the opposition could not stand it, refused to do it. And oftentimes, if it was forced upon him, there was payback due, and the payback was issued by Bob throwing it hitters, if, if they so cho- chose. So as Dusty Baker used to say, that man's crazy. He said, leave him alone. <laughs> don't, be talking to, don't be talking to this guy. He'll, he'll, he won't tolerate it. As a matter of fact, there's a great story that used to be told by Bill White. And Bill White had invited Gibson to see Willie Mays uh, uh, in San Francisco, where Willie lived. So the Cardinals were playing out there in the early 60s. And so they show up. And Willie Mays answers the doors. And, and he, in that high-pitched voice, sure. he really has involved you. Bob used to tell this story in such classic Gibson fashion. He'd say, um, uh, Willie answered the door, and he kind of looked behind uh, uh, Bill White. And he said, hey, Bill, who is that? And, and, 
And uh, <laughs> uh, Bill White said, that's Bob Gibson. I told you I was going to bring Gibson. And, and May said, you throw that hard and you wear glasses? <laughs> you got to be crazy. You throw that hard and you got to wear glasses? Well, Willie Mays' lifetime average against Bob Gibson, I think he hit five home runs, maybe six, and he hit 194 against Bob. Wow. Bob did not like facing Mays. You know, another guy you caught, and, and, and look, the easiest thing in the world for a lot of people is to throw it out there and say, ah, you know, Carlton in 1972, he wins 27 games for a team that won uh, 59 and, uh, and, 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 of course, you became basically his catcher, uh, both in St. Louis when you first met him and then, of course, uh, near the end of uh, your career and his career, for that matter, in, um, in Philadelphia. Th- that season, and I was dig- going back and digging around a little bit, that year there was a point in time where he starts the season 5-1. and one, He loses five games in a row where the Phillies score a total of 10 runs in support of him. He has 30 complete games, a 1.97 ERA, strikes out 310 batters, and wins 27 for a team that won 59. Have you ever seen anything like that year by one man? No. No. And I caught Gibson uh, in 1968 when Gibson uh, had the 1.12 earned run average which will, in my opinion, never be broken. I, I don't mind saying that at all. Uh, but, no, I think Lefty had a better year that year. I think Bob Gibson said that Lefty, and believe me, grudgingly, uh, that Bob <laughs> would say Lefty had a better year that year. Uh, but, I mean, here's the team that finished last. He was the athlete of the year yeah. that year for a last-place team. The American Athlete of the Year. That's incredible. Way that. I mean, that's something to say. And it was. You once said, because uh, of the relationship you and Carlton had, that when he dies and you die, and good Lord willing, that's a long (laughs) time from now, that you'll be buried 60 feet, 6 inches apart from one another. Do you really mean that? No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. I just want to make sure. I mean, because you never know. No, I was only kidding. It was picked up. It was picked up on the uh, on the on the news report, and uh, I I never had a chance to verify that. But no, I was only kidding. <laughs> now, Bobby Cox said to me one time, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. Legendary Atlanta Braves manager, and we're visiting with Tim McCarver. Um, it, it, it was when Randy Johnson was in the run of winning uh, four straight Cy Young Awards, uh, won five, I think it was, overall. And we were talking about Sandy Koufax. And and I've heard from a lot of old-timers that, you know, Koufax was the best left-hander of all time. You talk to some other people, maybe, that played the time you did that say Carlton's the best. Bobby Cox was old enough to remember both of those guys. And he said to me, make no mistake about it, and this is in his opinion, he said Randy Johnson was the best left-handed pitcher of all time. Do you agree with that? Yes. Really? Yes. And the reason, the reason I do is because of the fear factor. I mean, uh, if you remember the, uh, uh, the first baseman for the Phillies, uh, 
John, during the All-Star game. Yeah, John Crook, yeah. Yes. When uh, when Randy Johnson threw that fastball up and in yep. to him, and then he turned around and batted right-handed. The next sure, third. sure, right. <laughs> the next third, that's it's a famous shot of the Baltimore All-Star game first baseman. And that, that gives you an idea of how terrifying Randy Johnson was. And, and uh, to, me, to me, he surpassed uh, Koufax and Gibson, or Koufax and Carlson. You go right into television when your playing days are over. And, 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 you know, your career for any color analyst in any sport is truly unrivaled. And I said this at the beginning of the show before you, you joined us. And no, no, it's a fact. I mean, not even John Madden uh, could could stack up the resume that you put together, and you wound up in a broadcasting wing of the Hall of Fame. Um, you you also did local baseball for a number of teams. You still do, in fact, for the Cardinals. Did you enjoy yeah. more doing the local games, which is an which is an incredible grind, uh, day after day after day, which you were doing with the Mets here for a long, long time? Or, or did you enjoy the national stuff more? Well, they're both. They were v- both very different. Uh, they were different in the way you approached the game. You almost lived it with the team when you were a broadcaster with the team, uh, and and uh, consequently, I, you know, when I was with the Mets, the broadcast the, those were really the heydays. Mm-hmm. Working with Ralph Kiner, the great Ralph Kiner. And Steve Zabriskie, and then Gary Thorne later. Uh, those were wonderful days, and, and the Mets were coming. Dwight Gooden uh, came of age. Daryl Strawberry, uh, Ray Knight, the the, the, the very uh, Gary Gary Carter, uh, Keith Hernandez, the big trade from from uh, from St. Louis. Those were really heydays. I mean, the Met, you couldn't. You couldn't say the term Yankees in New York because the, the Mets owned that town mm-hmm. for a decade uh, up until the early 80s, uh, early, uh, early 90s. Uh, and, uh, and those were fun days. I mean, those were really a lot of fun. Uh, I don't think any national telecast can uh, approach those days as far as just kind of you know, in New York City, uh, to, to have that town uh, treat you as you were part of the Mets, and it was, it was just a glowing uh, uh, movement for everybody. And I've never been involved in any parade that, that matched that parade after the 1986 World Series championship over the Boston Red Sox. When you start your career, and Tim, I, I remember I, I was a young guy in college and, uh, and, and then starting my career in television and used to watch you on WOR all the time. And I, I used to always say to myself, this guy should be managing. Did, did you ever consider or have the opportunity to manage? I thought about it when I quit playing. But I didn't have any job offers. <laughs> well, that'll do the trick. I mean, and you got to have somebody offer you a job if you're going to manage for a team. I think had I been offered a manager's job with a AAA team and a team with which I was familiar, like the Phillies, 
I'd been released from the Phillies in 1979 after that season. And that's where I started my, my career, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, with, with uh, Harry Callis and, uh, and uh, Richie Ashburn and, and Andy Musser. And uh, so I, I, was, I was ready, but I had no offer. But I did have a three-year offer with the Phillies, and uh, I took it. Because at the time, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know whether anybody was going to offer me a job as the manager. And, and four, four years later, John McHale of the Montreal Expos mm-hmm. had a meeting with me and John, McH- and John McHale. Uh, and they had a meeting with me in Montreal and offered me the job to manage the Montreal Expos. And that was the only uh, I said, well, I've just signed a, uh, a deal with the, with the Phillies, so I, I, I really can't manage. And they said, well, we think you'd be perfect for this team. And the rest is history. I, I stuck with my broadcasting uh, gig, and it was the right thing to do, believe me, Tom. Did you ever regret, though, Timmy, not giving it a go? Or even expressing to someone else along the line? Because, look, you, you had reached a point in, in your career where everybody in the game already knew who you were as a player. Now everybody in the game is watching you on television because WOR and WGN were the only two in TBS superstations on basically every cable system in the country. Um, I mean, you, you could have picked up the phone or, or been on the road somewhere and a team scuffling, and, and, and you know, not that you'd sabotage somebody. I don't mean it that way. But, I mean, there had to have been a point in time where you could have said to somebody, hey, I might be interested in becoming a manager and throwing the word out on the street. Do, do you regret not doing it? Not really. No, I think I made the right move. I tell you the truth, that I've been a big league manager. I might be dead now. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, right, right. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of kidding and kind of serious. No, I, and I know what you mean. I mean, I, we've both seen guys that all of a sudden went, my, Bob Brenly, you know, as you know, our dear friend, you worked with him in the World Series in a booth. I mean, I, you, got it. I, you know, dear friend of mine I, and an old partner of mine, I, he was only a manager for three years, and, and he aged 15 years in those three years. And two of those years, they were in the playoffs, and one of those years, they won a World Series. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's my feeling in retrospect. And in looking back on all those years and the decisions I had to make, I made the right decisions by sticking with broadcasting. I want to ask you about the state of baseball, Timmy, a little bit now. Um, analytics have become a, a huge driving force in the game. I had Bob Costas uh, on a recent podcast. He thinks it's absolutely destroying the game. Um, I had George Will with us in the broadcast booth two years ago. Uh, George Will said sabermetrics are the best thing that ever happened to the hitter, the best thing that ever happened to the pitcher, and the worst thing that ever happened to the game. What are your thoughts on, on what's becoming really a sport dominated by analytics? I don't, I don't agree with the wholeheartedness of analytics. Uh, in other words, I agree with some of it. I think, I think some of it makes sense. But to say that it should be the sole guide as to whether to remove a pitcher or what have you, Blake Snell is the perfect example mm-hmm. in last year's World Series. And he's, 
removed from the game in the seventh inning of game six, and uh, he didn't like it. It made no sense to anybody who's ever played the game. made no sense, in my opinion. No. And uh, what, what's his reward? He's traded to San Diego. And he is San Diego's game because this guy can pitch. Mm-hmm. Well, you so, know, I mean, I, I just, I, you I know, you, it's, a, it's a combination. People, people say that that uh, that you have to have sabermetrics in order for the game to be, for, for the choices to be made, for the right choices to be made. That is simply not true. They've, they've, they've done away with the scout size. And, and in my opinion, uh, that's, that's wrong to do. You can't, you can't afford to do that. And I think it's being proven uh, when solely sabermetrics has, has been dealt with over the scout size. You know, the other thing that it's led to, Timmy, is the, 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 the result – and this percentage is climbing higher and higher and higher. At bats or plate appearances ending in a walk, a strikeout, or a home run. Um, there's no action. And and I really believe, I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but Timmy, hey, look, the, the, the television numbers don't lie. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't certain markets that do well from a local standpoint because a lot of them do very well. But as far as being the national sport and the pulse and the excitement and the anticipation of a playoff series or an LCS or a World Series, I really think that this is killing the game. I don't know if it's killing it, Tom, but I think it's handed it a, a severe blow. Uh, I think baseball needs to readjust and introduce or reintroduce, in my opinion, base running. No one knows. I mean, children are enthralled. You mentioned triples, but and not to get by with that again, but a triple is a very, very serious hit in my, in my estimation. Sure. And, and, and the reason I say that is that there's movement, and when there's movement for young people, uh, that gets them interested. It, with the home run, there's no movement. The guy's the home run, and he's, he's surrounded by even a game winner. Even game winners are, like, at times boring uh, in, in baseball games. And I, I think something has radically got to be done to change that feeling with the young players that that baseball ownership has to uh, has to heed if they're going to expect to continue to get the young people as baseball players and fans. I want to ask you about uh, two more things before we let you go. Um, you know, much has been made here in recent years. Uh, we know about the steroid scandal that baseball went through. Now, there are some guys that have admitted doing it that have been caught doing it. There are other guys that have been suspected of doing it, and some of those guys have been put into the Hall of Fame. There are other guys where it's never been proven for sure that they did it, even though you suspect they did it, and they've been left out of the Hall of Fame. Ultimately, do you think guys like Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, 
Mark McGuire, Alex Rodriguez. I mean, we can go right down the line. Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens. There, there you go. Thank you. That's just another one. Do you think right. uh, Rafael Palmero is a guy who numbers wise, there's no doubt he should be in the Hall of Fame. But do, do you do no you question. think do you think those guys um, should get in, or, or do you think they will get in? Where do you see that playing out ultimately? I honestly don't know, Tom. I I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, because right now, up to now, it's been one of the more unfair things about the Hall of Fame because some guys are in, some guys are not, as you pointed out. Uh, I don't know the answer to it. But I think eventually uh, Barry Bonds will get in. I think eventually Roger Clemens will get in. I'm not saying whether it's fair or not. Right. I think Alex Rodriguez will get in. Uh, whether it's fair or not, I'm not sure, uh, but I think eventually it'll change. W- will that mean a change for the better? Probably not. It'll be, it'll be a double standard for, for writers, uh, in my opinion. That's, uh, that's, that's my half-hearted Well, no, uh, I, think, I, I think it's an honest answer because I don't think there's anybody that could say with, with any certainty. Now, they might feel like guys should or shouldn't go in the Hall of Fame. That, that's a different ball game. but whether they will or won't, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question as you start getting younger writers and you know all that kind of thing. And I think we're going to see players get in right. the Hall of Fame based on some of these more sabermetric stats. That as I watch certain players play, I would never think in a million years they're a Hall of Famer, but but they're going to get voted in probably. But but that's for another time. You know, right. if, if if you look back on your life, Timmy, and 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 your career, I, I I've always found you, and I've been blessed to do a number of games with you through the years, whether they were regular season games, whether they were playoff games, which you and I had a chance to do together when Joe would be doing football and. <laughs> And we'd work together in cities from coast to coast and traveling together and have a dinner with you and getting to know you and the kind of man you are and person you are. But I've always felt that for the public at large, that Tim McCarver has always been a very private man. That even though you've done some of the biggest events uh, and and come into people's living rooms for 40-plus years, that there is still a side of Tim McCarver that many, many, many people don't know and will never know. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And is that something that was important to you? Well, I appreciate that assessment because it was important to me, and it it still is. I I do cherish my privacy, uh, uh, even though I cherish uh, the, 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 the approach to the public also. Uh, I realize that we have been in a uh, very public position uh, throughout our careers. When when you're in television, you are subjected to that, to very public positions and public comments, and you have to tag your name to it and expect to expect people to understand that this is your opinion. And I have never been. Uh, I've never uh, waned from uh, from expressing my opinion and putting my name to it. And I'm very proud of that because I don't have to look back on anything like that. And and you know backtrack backtracking and, and and 
say, oh, I didn't mean it like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean this. I didn't mean that. I put my name on it. And, and I'm, I'm very proud of that fact. So you, you were doing the St. Louis Cardinals games, doing some games two years ago. Last year when the pandemic hit, you decided not to do those games. And, and, and look, that was a whole different world altogether. Uh, what right. are your plans for 2021 this season? Are, are you going to be doing games? I don't know yet. I know, I know there's a lot that can happen, and meaning with the virus. Everything depends on the virus. And I think everybody understands that. When that rolls out, then I'll have a, I'll have an idea about where, what direction I'm taking. What else I'm, do you? I'm not, I'm not ashamed to announce that I'll turn 80 in October. I'm proud of that because I've made it. To Amen, the brother. Amen, brother. But what, what about Tim and, McCarver for the long haul? I mean, you know, okay, well, well you know, you, you'll decide whether you're going to do games I'm or not. I'm in the long haul. <laughs> no, you're not. You're fit. You're healthy. Thank God. No, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, you, you've never stopped living, right? So, so you know, no, as you I'm move not. forward, what, what do you want to do? I read an awful lot. Uh, I've had problems reading lately, however, because of my back. I know that sounds weird. I don't have eyes on my back, but uh, <laughs> my, my, my back gives me problems when I read. So I have to, I have to read in increments. So I, I read 50 pages, and then I put it up for, uh, for a half a day because that's usually all I can read. And I love history. I love, uh, I love particularly my father was uh, a Marine uh, in World War II, and I admired. I don't know a lot about the uh, the Western theater, and I'd like to explore that mm-hmm. a little more when I have time. But I I love reading about World War II because of my dad. Well, Timmy, I'll tell you right now. Um, uh, for a guy who had a chance to to watch you as a very young man, and uh, the opportunity to work with you, and and you know, look, when you're, you're in the kind of position that you're in and we're in for so many years, you know, you're going to have the people that love you and you're going to have the people that don't like you. I mean, that's just the nature of the business. And, and whenever people would say to me, and it's, it's true for all of us, I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You'll find somebody out there doesn't like Vin Scully, you know. But, but, but every time people would ask me, hey, man, what was it like working with McCarver? I, you know, I just looking at him and I just say, man, I'm going to tell you, there is nothing better in the world than two things. Walking in a booth where you know the guy you're working with is excited to be there and prepared to be there. And more importantly, on top of those two things, he loves to laugh and he'll laugh at himself. And and I just got such tremendous joy uh, of the times that we've been together and working with you. And I cannot thank you enough for those memories. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Well, and I thank you, Tom, for having me. Uh, You're a friend. You've always been a friend, and that will never change. Tim McCarver, kind enough to join us on Dialed In this week. And, uh, boy, I'm not kidding. I wasn't saying that just because he was on the show with us today. Uh, The the dozens of games, dozens and dozens of games, and I've had a chance to work with Tim. Um, Man, you talk about the ultimate pros pro. Uh, if you want to learn more about the program, you can go to dialedintb.com. 
Tom.com. That's dialed in T as in Tom, B as in boy. And yes, I can say TB. I'm older than Tom Brady. I'm not as good looking as Tom Brady. I'm not as athletic as Tom Brady. He is lean. I am fat. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the only thing I can say I got on him is I'm older than him. And I'm not so sure that that's something you really got on somebody if you're older than them. So dialed in TB.com. We thank the Believe Network. We thank Tim McCarver. We thank Dave Armbruster, our engineer. And we will catch you next week on Dialed In. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.